0: Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review a few pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss a shipwreck off the coast of North Carolina, the man who survived a shocking railroad accident, and a daring escape from East Germany. The events took place on September 12th, 13th, and 16th. September 12th, 1857, the SS Central America sinks roughly 150 miles east of the coast of North Carolina, drowning a total of 426 passengers and crew, including Captain William Lewis Herndon. It was the largest loss of life in a commercial ship disaster in United States history, and the ship was carrying 15 tons of gold from the California Gold Rush. SS Central America, known as the Ship of Gold, was a 280-foot side-wheel steamboat that operated between Central America and the eastern coast of the United States during the 1850s. On September 3, 1857, 477 passengers and 101 crew left Panama, sailing for New York City under the command of William Lewis Herndon. The ship was laden with 10 tons of gold prospected during the California Gold Rush. After a stop in Havana, the ship continued north. On September 9, 1857, the ship was caught up in Category 2 hurricane off the coast of the Carolinas. By September 11th, winds over 100 miles per hour and heavy seas had shredded the sails and the ship was taking on water and the boiler was starting to fail. A leak in one of the seals between the paddle wheel shafts and the ship's sides sealed its fate. At noon that day, the boiler failed completely. Steam pressure dropped, shutting down both of the bilge pumps. The paddle wheels that kept the ship pointed into the wind also failed. The passengers and crew flew the ship's flag inverted, which is a sign of distress in the United States. But no one came. A bucket brigade was formed, and the passengers and crew spent the night fighting a losing battle against the rising water. During the calm of the hurricane, attempts were made to get the boiler running again, but these failed. The second half of the storm then struck. Without power, the ship was carried along with the storm, and the strong winds did not let up. The next morning, on September 12th, two passing ships were spotted. Only 153 passengers, primarily women and children, made their way over in lifeboats. The ship remained in an area of intense winds and heavy seas that pulled the ship and most of the passengers away from rescue. The SS Central America sank at 8 p.m. that evening. Men on the ship tried to break up wooden parts to use as floats in hopes of surviving. As a consequence of the sinking, 425 people were killed. A Norwegian ship rescued an additional 50 from the waters. Another three were picked up over a week later in a lifeboat. The loss of life was described as appalling and unparalleled compared to other disasters at sea. The loss also shook public confidence in the economy. At the time of the sinking, the SS Central America was carrying approximately 15 tons of gold, which is worth about 765 million in 2021. Commander William Lewis Herndon a distinguished officer who had served during the Mexican-American War and explored the Amazon Valley was captain of the Central America. Herndon was able to get some women and children safely off the ship to another vessel. Survivors of the disaster reported seeing Commander Herndon in full uniform, standing by the wheelhouse with one hand on the rail, his hat in the other hand, and his head bowed in prayer as the ship went down. With no way to save the ship, Herndon chose to stay with more than 400 passengers and crew, who drowned as the ship sank. Two U.S. Navy ships were later named USS Herndon in his honor, as was the town of Herndon, Virginia. Two years after the sinking, his daughter Ellen married Chester Allen Arthur, who became the 21st President of the United States. Over 100 years later, the ship was located by the Columbus America Discovery Group of Ohio. A rover was sent down on September 11th, 1988. Significant amounts of gold and artifacts were recovered and brought to the surface. The total value of the recovered gold was estimated between 100 to 150 million. A gold block weighing 80 pounds was recovered and sold for a record 8 million. It was the most valuable piece of currency in the world at the time. Here's my take on the sinking of the SS Central America. Very scary stuff. Being stranded in the deep ocean is one of my biggest fears. And I can't imagine being in a hurricane in the middle of the ocean. I've been in a few on land, and that's scary enough. Being out in the open water, in the deep sea, absolutely not. You'll never ever find me there. Uh, Commander Hardin, total badass. And... The full story of the ship, from the history of when it was built, to its sinking, to its discovery 120 or 30 years later, and uh, recovering all that gold, that'd make for a really cool movie or a really cool documentary. September 13th, 1848 Vermont railroad worker Phineas Gage survives an iron rod over one inch in diameter being driven completely through his brain destroying much of the left frontal lobe. The reported effects on his behavior and personality stimulate discussion of the nature of the brain and its functions. Physician John Harlow who knew Gage before his accident described him as a perfectly healthy, strong, and active young man possessing an iron will as well as an iron frame, almost never taking a sick day. Gage first worked with explosives on farms as a youth or in nearby mines and quarries. He worked on construction of the Hudson River Railroad. By the time of the accident, he was a blasting foreman on railway construction projects. His employers described him as the most efficient and capable foreman, a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. He even commissioned a custom-made tamping iron, a large iron rod that looks like a javelin, for use in setting explosive charges. On September 13, 1848, Gage was blasting rock and directing a work gang in preparation for the roadbed of the Rutland and Burlington Railroad, south of Cavendish, Vermont. Setting a blast entailed digging a deep hole into rock, adding blasting powder in a fuse, and then using the tamping iron to pack sand, clay, and other material into the hole above the powder in order to contain the blast's energy and direct it into the surrounding rock. As Gage was doing this, he was distracted by his men working behind him, looking over his right shoulder and inadvertently bringing his head into line with the blast hole, Gage opened his mouth to speak and in that same instant the tamping iron sparked against the rock and the powder exploded. The tamping iron, over one inch in diameter, three and a half feet long and weighing thirteen pounds, was rocketed from the hole and entered the left side of Gage's face in an upward direction through the lower jaw. The rod continued upward shattering the cheekbone, passing behind the left eye, through the left side of the brain, and then completely out the top of his skull. The tamping iron landed 80 feet away, point first, just like a javelin, smeared with blood and brain. Gage was thrown onto his back and had brief convulsions of the arms and legs, but spoke within a few minutes, walked with little assistance, and sat upright on the ride into town which was about one mile. About thirty minutes after the accident, physician Edward Williams found Gage sitting in a chair outside a hotel. He recounted their meeting with the following statement. When I drove up, Mr. Gage greeted me by saying, Doctor, here's enough business for you. I first noticed the wound upon his head. The pulsations of the brain are very distinct. The top of the head appeared somewhat like an inverted funnel as if a wedge had passed upward from below. Mr. Gage, during the time I was examining this wound, was relating the manner in which he was injured to the bystanders. I did not believe his statement at the time, and thought he was confused. Mr. Gage persisted in saying that the bar went through his head. He got up and vomited. The effort of vomiting caused pieces of his brain to exit the top of his skull and fall onto the floor physician John Harlow said Gage bore his sufferings with the most heroic firmness. He recognized Dr. Harlow immediately and was perfectly conscious, saying he hopes he isn't hurt too much. He said he has no interest in seeing his friends since he'll be back at work in a few days. During the first two weeks of recovery, his condition deteriorated. He was comatose and a funeral was already planned for him. Two weeks later, however, Due to the expertise of Dr. Harlow and Gage's will to live, he was awake and began walking again. Although he was still very weak, he returned home just ten weeks after the accident. In February of 1860, 12 years after the accident, Gage began having seizures. He lost his job as the seizures increased in frequency and severity. On May 18, 1860, Gage went home to see his mother. Two days later, he had a severe convulsion. The convulsions repeated frequently and he died on May 21, 1860. Gage is a fixture in psychology and neuroscience, described as one of the great medical curiosities of all time and a living part of medical folklore. He is frequently mentioned in books and scientific papers. And even has a minor place in pop culture. Historically, published accounts of Gage, including scientific ones, have almost always severely exaggerated and distorted his behavioral changes, frequently contradicting the known facts. A report of Gage's physical and mental condition shortly before his death implies that his most serious mental changes were temporary, and he was far more functional in the later years of his life than in the years immediately following his accident. It is suspected that his work as a stagecoach driver fostered this recovery by providing daily structure that allowed him to regain lost social and personal skills. Here's my take on Phineas Gage. Oh my goodness. You gotta see the 3D graphics of how this injury happened. It's not graphic, it's like a... you know... Like a 3D model just of how the rod went through his jaw and out the top of his head. It's it's shocking. The pole is huge and went through his entire head. And of course his behavior changed. Are you kidding me? Everyone changes after an accident. And ninety nine point nine nine percent of them don't involve a giant metal rod going through your entire face. Head trauma changes behavior. Absolutely, sure. But emotional trauma changes your behavior too. Engage was the ultimate stoic. September sixteenth, nineteen seventy-nine. Eight people escaped from East Germany to West Germany in a homemade hot air balloon. The plot to accomplish this was carried out over a period of one and a half years, including an unsuccessful attempt, three different balloons, and various modifications until the successful escape occurred. One failed crossing alerted the government to the plot, but the police were not able to identify the suspects before their flight to the West. The Eastern Bloc country of East Germany was separated from West Germany by the Inner german border and the Berlin Wall which were heavily fortified with watchtowers, landmines, armed soldiers, and various other measures to prevent its citizens from escaping to the west. The East German Border Patrols were instructed by standing order to prevent border penetration by all means, including lethal force. Peter Strelzik, an electrician and former East German Air Force mechanic, and Gunter Wetzel, a bricklayer, were colleagues at a local plastics factory and had been friends for four years. They shared a desire to flee the country and began discussing ways to cross the border. In March of 1978 they agreed to plan an escape. They considered building a helicopter but quickly realized they would not be able to acquire an engine capable of powering such a craft. Then they decided to investigate the idea of constructing a hot air balloon after seeing a television program about ballooning. Another account is that they saw a magazine article about the International Balloon Festival in Albuquerque, New Mexico. The pair began researching balloons. Their plan was to escape with their wives and four children, aged two to 15. They calculated the weight of the passengers and the craft itself to be around 1,600 pounds. They determined a balloon capable of lifting this weight would need to hold over 70,000 cubic feet heated to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. The next calculation was the amount of material needed for the balloon, estimated 8,600 square feet. The pair lived in a small town of about 20,000, where gathering large quantities of cloth would raise attention. They tried neighboring towns without success. They traveled 30 miles to Jira, where they purchased rolls of cotton cloth that were about three feet wide totaling 2,800 feet in length. They told the stunned clerk at the store that they needed the large quantity of material to use as tent lining for their camping club. Wetzel spent two weeks sewing the cloth into a balloon-shaped bag, roughly 50 feet wide and 65 feet long, using a 40-year-old manually operated sewing machine. During that two-week period, Strelzik built the gondola and burner assembly. The gondola was made from an iron frame sheet metal, and clothesline. The burner was made using two 25-pound bottles of liquid propane gas, hoses, water pipe, a nozzle, and a piece of stove pipe. After running a couple tests, they realized they had to make several changes to the materials used to build the balloon. The original balloon leaked, and they needed a fabric that was also heat resistant. They drove 100 miles to another distant town and said they were manufacturing sails for their sailing club. They also made a lot of adjustments to their burners so the balloon would heat up and fill faster. On July 3, 1979, the weather and wind conditions were favorable. The families lifted from a forest clearing at 1.30 a.m. and climbed at a rate of 13 feet per second. They reached an altitude of almost 7,000 feet according to an altimeter Stralzik made for modifying a barometer. A moderate wind was blowing them towards the border and freedom in West Germany. The balloon entered a cloud, causing atmospheric water vapor to condense on the balloon. The added weight of the water caused the balloon to descend. They landed safely approximately 500 to 600 feet from the border, on the edge of a heavily mined border zone. Unsure of where they were, Strelzik explored the area and found a bread bag from a bakery in an East German town, confirming they were still in East Germany. The family spent nine hours carefully extricating themselves from the border zone to avoid detection. They also had to travel unnoticed through a three-mile restricted zone before hiking back almost nine miles to their car, leaving all of the launch paraphernalia behind. They made it home just in time to report being absent due to sickness from work and school. The balloon was left where it landed and discovered later that morning. Strelzik destroyed everything remaining and sold his car, fearing that could connect him to the balloon. One month later, the East German police, known as the Stasi, advertised for help finding the perpetrator of a serious offense and listed in detail all of the items left at the crash site. Strelzik felt that the Stasi would eventually trace the balloon to him and the Wetzels. He conferred with Wetzel, and they agreed that their best chance was to quickly build another balloon and get out as soon as possible. The pair decided to double the balloon size to 140,000 cubic feet in volume, 65 feet in diameter, and 80 feet in height. They needed 13,500 square feet of nylon fabric, which they purchased in various colors and patterns all over the country to escape suspicion. Wetzel sewed a third balloon using 3.7 miles of thread, and Strelzik rebuilt everything else as before. They were ready in six weeks, with a 400-pound balloon and a load of 1,200 pounds including the gondola, equipment, and the two families. Confident in their calculations, they found weather conditions right on September 15th, when a violent thunderstorm created the correct winds. They set off for the launch site in Strelsky's replacement car and a moped. Arriving at 1.30 a.m., they only needed about 15 minutes to take off. They lifted off just after 2 a.m. Due to not cutting the tethers that were holding the gondola to the ground at the same time, it tilted, sending the flame towards the fabric which caught fire. The fire was put out with an extinguisher they brought just for such an emergency. The balloon climbed to 6,600 feet in 9 minutes, drifting towards West Germany at 20 miles per hour. They flew for almost 30 minutes with the temperature at 18 degrees Fahrenheit and no shelter as the gondola was just a railing of clothesline. A design miscalculation resulted in the burner pipe being too long, causing the flame to be too high and creating excessive pressure, which caused the balloon to split. Air rushing out of the split extinguished the burner flame. Wetzel was able to relight the flame with a match, which he had to do several more times before they landed. At one point, they increased the flame to the maximum possible and rose to 8,200 feet. They were high enough to be detected on radar by West German air traffic controllers. They had also been detected on the East German side by a night watchman. The report of an unidentified flying object heading toward the border caused guards to activate searchlights, but the balloon was too high and out of reach of the lights. The tear in the balloon meant they had to use the burner a lot more often and the distance they could travel was greatly limited. Wetzel later said he thought they could travel another 30 miles if the balloon remained intact. They recognized the border crossing and saw the searchlights. When the propane ran out, they descended quickly, landing in West Germany about six miles from the border. The only injury was suffered by Wetzel, who broke his leg when they landed. After landing, they saw small farms, different from the large state-run operations in the East. Another clue was modern farm equipment that was unlike the older equipment that was used in East Germany. Two Bavarian police officers saw a flickering light and headed towards the balloon. When the police arrived, Strelzik and Wetzel asked if they had made it to the west. They also noticed the police car was an Audi, another sign they were in West Germany. Upon learning they were indeed in West Germany, they happily called for their families to come join them. The families decided to settle in Nyla, where they landed. Wetzel worked as a mechanic, and Strelzik opened a TV repair shop. Feeling pressure from the Stasi spies, the Strelzigs moved to Switzerland in 1985. After the German reunification in 1990, they returned to their old home in East Germany. The Wetzels remained in Bavaria. Here's my take on the East German balloon escape. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. These two guys with elephant balls worked relentlessly to save their families from the oppression of East Germany and they were willing to take them over 8,000 feet in the air in a homemade hot air balloon that they basically made with household supplies and shit they found at work to escape the hell of communism. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. September 12, 1846. Elizabeth Barrett elopes with Robert Browning. Oh, you've never heard of them? They're two English poets of the Victorian era. Now does it make it more important? No, of course not. Of course it doesn't. September 14, 1994. The Major League Baseball season is canceled because of a strike. I remember this very well. I was 12 years old. This ruined baseball for everyone. I haven't watched baseball since and uh, literally probably not even one inning. And um, baseball is no longer America's pastime. We have football now. And I'm happy to say I beat the balls off of everyone in fantasy football today. Everyone. September 18th, 1990. Leichenstein becomes a member of the United Nations. Bet you haven't heard of that either. It's a country in the Alps with 40,000 people. I'm sure it's beautiful, and it's probably a really nice place to live. Probably looks like the movie Frozen. But uh, the addition is silly. They're not gonna offer us much. And you know what, the United Nations is silly. It's all bullshit, total bullshit, complete nonsense. And that's uh, all we got for today. Appreciate you guys tuning in and I'll see you next week.